So glad that you're here today. Now, I have to share with you that I have a love-hate relationship with raccoons. I don't know how you feel about them. Um, I love to hate them is the, the way it works. So we found out that we had some very well-fed raccoons at our home when we first moved into it that they would kick over the trash cans. And now they don't even kick it over anymore. They just go shopping and they're like 400 pounds, you know? Uh, you know, I, when I was a, a kid, there was a book that I read growing up. Some of you will recognize the title, Where the Red Fern Grows written by Wilson Rawls. It's a, a beautiful book, but fictional, but he talks about his own life events growing up as a kid loving raccoon hunting. So he's near and dear to my heart, right? Uh, but he tells the story of the fact that once he'd gotten his dogs, he needed a, a raccoon pelt so that he could train the dogs. And so what his grandpa told him that he could do, he couldn't afford one, is that his grandpa told him that he could take something really shiny and drill a hole just about the size of a raccoon's paw and put that shiny thing inside there. Some of you read this and you, you like me, when you heard this, uh, when he tells the story, uh, you, you start to get this feeling like maybe this is something that happens inside of us. The story is that you can put that shiny thing inside and what his grandpa told him is that the raccoon will reach in and grab that shiny thing and then once it gets a hold of it, it refuses to let go, ultimately leading to its death. Now, when I read that as a boy, I couldn't help but think about my own heart and my own life, that there's things in my life that can become so valuable to me, that they're so precious that I hold on to them. And this morning, as we continue through our study through the book of Nehemiah, what we're going to look at is a group of people who are ready to sign on the bottom line that they're ready to say, God, I'm willing to give you my best. I'm willing to, to let go of the things that you've blessed me with, not to see them as my own, but to see them as your own. And I, and I can't help but think of the contrast from that individual that's holding tight to something that refuses to let go. To think of the little boy with his fishes and loaves. We don't know the details of the story, but what we know is that he packed his lunch. He was ready and not everybody else was. And when the Lord and the disciples were looking to feed the thousands, that, that ultimately it was going to be this little boy that was going to have open hands that God's going to take what's in his hand and multiply it and use it to bring himself glory and honor. We know the story because of the fact that he was open-handed. And this morning, church, as we talk about a, a section of, of scripture that ends in chapter 9 and goes through chapter 10 of Nehemiah, what we're going to see is these individuals are finally ready to say, you know what, Lord, we've, we've held these things for ourselves, for our own benefit for too long. And we're ready to say, Lord, here it is. This is your, have your way with my stuff. And what's going to happen is that we're going to see God fulfilling a prophecy and a blessing to his people. That really means that they decided that the God of the universe was worth their best. And so this morning, as we study God's word together, this idea that God deserves our best is going to be what we focus in on, that, that he's worth us giving him our all. And this is going to be focusing in on our ties, our, our, our talents, and our treasure. They, our time, that, that this is our resource. This is who we are, that the Lord has desired and deserves our best. And we're going to see an example in scripture of individuals who say, Lord, we're willing to be all in. We're willing to give you our best. And I believe what we'll see is that God not only deserves our best, but he's worthy of our best. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter nine. We're gonna pick up on the last verse that we studied last week, verse 38. 
And I want you to see with me the simple words that they declared. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant. Remember, a covenant is a promise to God. In this case, they're going to put it in writing. A covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. They're, they're making this thing official. They're going to say, Lord, we're, we're all in. We're going to give you our best. And we're going to see a variety of ways that they're going to sacrifice to make God worthy that they're going to be willing to be open-handed with, with, with what they have been provided, seeing those things not as their own, but seeing them as ultimately God's blessing to be returned back to him. They're making this binding agreement. I, I don't know if you've had the privilege of purchasing a home or having to sign an important document, but that, that pen just feels a little heavier, doesn't it? And here they're going to gonna make something that was implicit. We're all in, explicit. They're gonna state it in such a way that, that it's, it's recorded. And it's gonna be the fulfillment of a prophecy that was in Jeremiah 31 that, that said that there would be a day when the restrained Israelites were going to experience not only forgiveness, be restored and have a genuine desire to obey the Lord with their lives. And this is what we get to see fulfilled in this chapter 10. Now, if, if, you are, if you do have your Bibles and you're looking at the first 27 verses, it's a lot of names and I'm not going to read them this morning. Some of you are disappointed because you like hearing me stumble through names in the Bible. But, but we're going to look at this, uh, the, the context of this. These, these 84 names that were recorded in chapter 10, the verse 27 verses, began with the leaders, Nehemiah, and Zedekiah, and then next were 21 priests, and then 17 heads of the Levitical households. They're recorded in the next verses. And then the 44 heads of the leading families, and then uh, the rest. And, and that's literally what the text says. It says the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, that they're going to go on record to sign this document that says what they are willing to give. And I want you to notice as we study this, the variety of the gifts. It's amazing to me that God can be worshipped through fish and bread. That God can be worshipped through, we're going to see it be worshipped through the giving of firewood. We're going to see it through, through money. We're going to see the giving of bread. That's all kinds of interesting things. But I want you to see that it's a really truly about the heart of the giver and the generosity of the people that are willing to say that these resources that you blessed us with, God, they were never mine for my own benefit, but therefore your glory. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, verse 29, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all of the commandments of the Lord with his rules and his statutes. There, there is something that's clearly being done that's very helpful for us to understand, and it's that, that is that the Israelites understand the value of something that can bless your life if you understand the value of this, and that is the blessing of pre-made decisions. They are saying, when it comes time for me to give, when I have my resources in front of me, even how I do business, that I'm going to commit myself to doing it God's way, that I'm going to be someone who's generous in the way I choose to make the decisions of my life, instead of allowing the heat of the moment to be the place that we make decisions. Because let's be honest, when, 
we make decisions in the heat of the moment, sometimes we make really, really bad decisions. I, I like to think of myself as friends with Miles Garrett, um, the, the Browns football player, um, because I bumped into him in the Walmart parking lot, and we had this five-minute conversation right after he was first drafted. Now, most of us know Miles Garrett not only because he was the number one draft pick for the Cleveland Browns a couple of years back, but because of the infamous helmet hit that he used. Now, I don't care who started it, all right? Some of you have opinions about that, I know. But, but what we know, listen to the words of Miles Garrett in the days afterwards when he said, and I remember, heat of the moment. He said, I lost my cool and I made a terrible mistake. He's been, he was banished from playing the rest of the year. They say that it'll cost him at least a million and a half dollars. Can you imagine? A million and a half dollar mistake. But not only did that impact his reputation, but it, it impacted his career and so many, just one decision in the heat of the moment. As Christ followers, one of the blessings for us is that we can look ahead and say, this is going to be difficult and I'm going to choose to, what I recommend that we see here in the text is I'm going to choose to take God at his word. I'm going to honor him. I want to do this according to his will. Pre-made decisions are powerful, especially when they involve, involve obeying God. The Israelites heard the law. Now they're willing to put a plan into place to live it out, to, to make it active. One of the most frightening things about being a believer for a while is that I've noticed is a temptation for me. And that is the belief that because I've heard something before, that it, it no longer has to be applied in my life. In the book of James, it warns us that we ought to not be people who are hearers of God's word, but doers of God's word. And what's scary that can happen in our lives is that we can hear it and we can be familiar with it, and then we can just choose to go on and live our lives without implementing it into our lives. And there's a threat to our very well-being when we do that over time. We go callous to the truth of God's word. What the Israelites are going to do, and I love this, based on the fact that they've gotten this wrong for years and years and years, is that they're going to say, from this day forward, we're going to get this right. We're going to make these decisions that put God in the right place in our life, that we're going to not just be hearers of the truth, but we're going to predetermine to honor God, regardless of the cost. They're going to take this extremely seriously. When, when Ali and I were in, in seminary, we had this wonderful couple that were good friends of ours, and uh, they, they shared this story that was unique, and that was that they, when they were at their church, they were just attending a church, and the church was going through a building campaign, you know, where they asked people to give kind of above and beyond what they've been giving financially to support a building. We've done that here at Hope before. And so they were gearing up for that, and this couple sat in church that day, and and for both of them, there was a pretty significant gift that they felt like God was saying that he wanted them to commit to giving. And, and that was the same number for both of them, even though they hadn't really discussed it. And then they discussed it, and it was like, yeah, this is what we think God wants us to commit to giving. And so they made this commitment, and then just a couple of weeks later, uh, he ended up losing his job. And so now they're confused, like, wait a second, like, God, we, we thought that you asked us to do this, but now I've lost my job. So, so maybe you just didn't, isn't it amazing how quickly we can justify ignoring God's hand and voice when it becomes difficult. But what they committed themselves to doing is that they committed themselves to actually still following through with this commitment because they felt like it was God's commitment in their life. And you know what I love about this story is that we so often tell these stories and then we say, and then he won the, the lottery million and a half dollars, right? Like, like we, we have that, that, it didn't happen. In fact, 
what happened with them was that it meant that this commitment, this financial commitment, ultimately impacted the groceries that they spent, the way they spent their housing, their cost of living, that it, it represented a huge sacrifice. But you know what I think happened in my friend's life that day? Is that I think that what they did was they moved from having their stuff own them to be at a point where they decided that they were going to allow God to be the possessor of everything in their lives. And I, I don't know how their financial bank account is doing today. But what I can tell you is that God was glorified in the process of them saying, yeah, God, this is your stuff. It never was my stuff anyways. I want to predetermine to take you at your word. I want to honor you in my life. And, and I think that, that that statement is the antidote to something that the Lord Jesus warned us. This is hard words for me to hear. But the Lord Jesus warned us that he said it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you heard this before? It's harder for a camel to, the, the warning that's there is saying that when we're wealthy people, when we don't have to worry about our daily bread, what can happen is those things can become our God, right? And that it ultimately leads us to a place where we no longer depend on God to be our God, but instead we think we've got it in our own control. And I, and I love this, this statement, this warning, and this ability for us to say, you know what, the, the moment that we just offer it back to the Lord, fishes and loaves, it's not a huge deal, but it's a step of obedience where we say, Lord, I want to give you my best. This is an incredibly wise principle, these pre-made decisions. It's been well said that the best time to deal with a problem is when there is no problem. And that's, that's what we're challenging ourselves to do, is to be people who make the decision ahead of time. I have a good friend who was on a SWAT team in this area, and he told me that his training was, was amazing. He said, we drilled all of the time so that when we were in the heat of the moment, life or death decisions have to get made. But he said, we trained ourselves to make the right decision because we'd prepared ourselves for it. So, so the decision wasn't being made in the heat of the moment. It was being made in the training times, then days, weeks, months before. That's what I believe the Lord gives us the privilege of doing. And here the Israelites are doing this. They're, they're saying, we're going to take this incredibly seriously. I love the fact that in the text that this is a family affair that we see in, in chapter 10, verse 28, and then later in verse 30, it says this, their wives, their sons, their daughters in verse 28. For the, you get that, that tinge of Joshua when he says, as for me and my household, this wasn't an afterthought. They, they're actually saying something we say in our language when they talk about bringing curses down upon them. They say, shame on me if I don't fulfill this. They're saying, this is so serious that I want to do everything in my power to honor this. In other words, they're saying, curse me if I don't follow through with my covenant that I'm making today. Maybe most helpful this morning in, in chapter 10, verse 31, they're agreeing to do business God's way, regardless of the personal cost. I, I love this in the text, um, looking at verse 30. It says this, it says, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take the, their daughters for our sons. It's important to catch, this is not a racial statement. This is a religious statement. And they saying we will not give them up to the religions of other cultures, but instead we will protect them jealously for the heart of God. Verse 31, 
And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain in the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the extraction of every debt. You know what they knew? They knew that by making this commitment that it was going to negatively impact their bottom line. At least that was the assumption. They're going to not do work one day a week. They're going to choose to not hold everyone's debts up above them. They're going to take this seven-year time period to allow the crops to not be planted, allow the land to heal. They're doing something that basically they're saying, we're going to take God at his word. We're going to trust him that this is what's best. And it's ultimately going to have an impact on them. And it's appropriate to say this, that there's a profound connection between our hearts and our pocketbooks. They're making that connection. And they're ultimately saying, God's worth it. He's worth us doing these decisions that are going to ultimately bring him glory and honor. And I think there's a profound connection. We know this in scripture. The Lord Jesus says, remember the statement? He says, where your treasure is, do you remember what it says? Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Can't help but, but keep that image in my mind of the individual that says, it's mine. I have to protect it. This is the only way that I can experience life on my terms. And it just seems like God in his masterful wisdom, I know this in my own life. I've seen, seen him do it so many times. Anytime I feel comfortable in that, sometimes what he does is he just pries my fingers off of that thing. And he says, you know what? This is all my stuff. I'm, I've got you. I care about you. I'm going to continue to provide for you, but it's going to be on my terms. And ultimately, the thing that leads us to get that right or to experience that beautifully is when we see this process be a part of our understanding that it's all about the provider of those gifts. We, we say in 1 Timothy, uh, we kind of mis, for, misquote 1 Timothy sometimes where we say money is the root of all evil. Uh, but that passage, what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, is it says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's funny that that affectionate term that describes our deepest, most emotional bond with another person or another thing would be described as love, that we can love money. And the antidote for loving money is to be a person who chooses to be generous with the provider of those resources. They gave out of their, their conviction that God was worth it. As we continue on in verse 32, it says, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Now, this is, this is an intriguing thing. Commentators have tried to figure this out because uh, the common gift at that time would have been a half shekel. And so the assumption that we make in the context is that they're actually taking on both the half shekel and the third shekel. They're, they're giving abundantly more than what would be expected of them legally. That it says um, in verse 33, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feast, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel for all the work of the house of our God. Some of these sacrifices would be burnt up. They'd be burnt offerings. Some of these are going to be times where there's a portion of it that's consumed in a celebratory way, and then the rest of it is given to ministry there's other times when, when these things, I love the variety, variety, I'm sorry, of the different things that are, are given to the Lord, that some of them seem so mundane. <laughs> Later on, we'll see like firewood is talked about. But, 
But what they're saying is that, that we're just looking at everything of value in our life. And we're saying, it's yours, God. Like, this is yours. This isn't mine. This is yours. And I want to tr- entrust it into your care. It says this in verse 34. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's house that at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. What I see in the text here is that they saw this as a legitimate act of worship. And the heart of the giver is evident in the gift. We know the story of Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, that that one gave one type of sacrifice and another a different type of sacrifice. And I really don't think it has anything to do with one being meat and the other being vegetables. What I believe it has to do with is the heart of the giver. And that one of them, Abel, decided to give God his best, his first, his, his cherished parts. And, and, and Cain chose to give his leftovers, what he could spare. And I, it amazes me, the character of my God, that he knows the difference, that he, he knows when I'm giving my best, and he knows when I'm choosing not to put first things first. It is, it is powerful to see in the text, in the next section, chapter 10, Verse 35, look what it says. It says, we obligate ourselves to bring the leftovers of our ground and the leftovers of all the fruit of every tree year by year. It doesn't say that, does it? The, the text says that we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits. It's not, we're not in an agrarian culture or maybe a few of you are growing things and maybe you try like me to grow a garden. But uh, you, you recognize that this doesn't necessarily think, mean the first things that came out of the ground, but this means the best the choicest, the, the best things that we're choosing to give God the best, the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year. Verse 36, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons. It's, it's funny that this is tucked around cattle and, and crops and, and other things. Can you imagine the cost of dedicating a child to be used in ministry going forward, your firstborn son. I know that my King of Kings and Lord of Lords knows that cost when he sent his son to seek and to save that which was lost. We see this description as it goes on, cattle as it is written in the Lord, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, verse 37, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and oil. Do you get that these trying to be comprehensive here? He's trying to say all of this stuff. We ought to see it as a gift to the Lord, to the chambers of the house of our God and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. First is emphasized multiple times in the text here. And, and often when we think of a tithe, we think of 10%. It's literally what that means. <laughs> But, but for some of us, I think we get caught up on that percentage. And it's, it's so associated with, uh, with giving and tithing that, that I, I believe that there's, it's important for us to understand that what he's talking about here is giving back to God lavishly, sacrificially. And sometimes that percentage may matter more to us than it does to him. I shared with you that I have a friend who's a pastor at a church in Aspen, Colorado. It's a beautiful place. I visited him one time. And he told me the story that they were in a building campaign where they had a million and a half dollar building that they were working on. And the first week that they presented the building, um, the campaign to the congregation, 
there was a man who'd never been to the church before. He walked in, he sat down, and he wrote a check for a million and a half dollars. Can you imagine that? Uh, I think that check should be a little heavier than others, right? Um, and and you, you find yourself so overwhelmed by that. But what, what I believe in my understanding of God, and even just the way he understands our hearts, is that it's possible that that day someone else wrote a check that was much smaller, way few um, less num numbers of zeros at the end of that check. But that, that person gave in, out of their poverty or out of their, their lack of provision, and ultimately it brought the same amount of glory and honor to the Lord. Do you notice in the text as we're looking at this that he talks about the tithe, and then he talks about all the other stuff that you give on top of it. And so the tithe isn't just an excuse to say this is the percentage. But instead, what we're doing here, as we look at these verses, is that they're saying, it's just us saying, Lord, this is yours, that I trust you, that I entrust myself into your care. And, and I think that when we think of the word sacrifice, I think it's appropriate for us to say sacrifices require sacrifice, right? It comes at a cost for us, that it involves us giving our best to the Lord. And it's intriguing to me that the God that I serve, the God of the universe, understands excellence. He understands the quality of our service, that he, he gets it. He gets that it ought to cost us something. One of my, my favorite stories that my, my senior pastor in California would tell was that they're a very hospitable couple. They're a wonderful couple. And he, um, uh, Pastor Ingrid tells the story on a Sunday afternoon after church, he was in his pajamas. Uh, his wife was taking a nap, and he was watching some football on, on Sunday afternoon. Uh, sounds good, right? Not yet. You gotta wait. We're not done yet here. But um, so he uh, he was relaxing at his home, and the doorbell rang. And there's a woman that came to the door, and then she she walked in, uh, and then the doorbell rang again. He has no idea why she's there. And then uh, the doorbell rang, and she walked in too. And 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 then uh, they start talking about lunch, and they had totally forgotten that they had invited a house full of people <laughs> over to their house for lunch. And and so Gary looks over at his wife, and they're trying to communicate because they're trying to, to, you know, figure out how to make them. They grab like this half-eaten rotisserie chicken, you know, and they're like praying over it, like multiply the half-eaten rotisserie chicken. And, and and then finally, they just had to accept that that they weren't prepared for this, right? I think they, uh, and the people who attended that story till tell, still tell that story to this day as well. You know, there's a, there's a way that we welcome uh, the Lord into our lives that's worthy of him. And there's other times that we communicate that it's an afterthought, right? That we allow ourselves to uh, settle for giving him the good instead of the best, I think it's helpful for me to accept that God is aware more than just what we give, but he cares about the why and how we give. It may be awkward for some of you in a church for, for me to stand up and talk so much about giving because historically there have been some horrible things done in the name of the church and the way people approach money and giving to it. In fact, uh, Allie and I were watching TV one time together and we we're flipping through channels and there was a, a televangelist that was in tears. I mean, just crocodile tears 
uh, saying that they desperately needed money for their ministry and uh, praying that people would give lavishly to this. And, and he also did this thing that some people will do, and that is he, he had an equation. If you give God this, then you'll get this back. And I remember the numbers like one to 10, and he just, he articulated it so passionately. And uh, just a couple of weeks later, I was um, speaking in the Bahamas and uh, the, where we were, were serving at, they set up a tour of the Atlantis. Some of you have been to the Atlantis or you've heard of the Atlantis. And during the tour, the tour guide points up at the, what they call the bridge suite there. And she says, you know, that's the most expensive uh, hotel room in the world. Uh, it, you, um, it's over $20,000 a night and you have to stay there a minimum of seven nights. Um, uh, and so and then she said, and the person who's staying there, and then she said the name of the evangelist that was, um, that I had heard on TV and t- and, and, and so we, we know that in, in the environment, in every environment, it doesn't just happen in the church. We know that there are people who have used that though, that story to be the reason why they choose not to give to their God. And I, and I want to challenge you that God not only knows what we give, but he knows why we give. And in the book of Acts, we're going to study the book of Acts together in a couple of months here. And one of the things that we'll talk about is Ananias and Sapphira, the story of a couple who really liked the idea of people seeing them give. They wanted to appear more generous than what they actually were because there's benefits for that. There's, there's all kinds of ways that we can do this wrong. But, but what ultimately happens with them is that they're reminded by a sovereign God that he understands our hearts, that he deserves and desires our best. And this is not about us, but it's ultimately about him. I love the way that that Nehemiah chapter 10 ends. I love these last words of Nehemiah chapter 10. It says this, And the priest and the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of God, to the chambers of the storehouse. This is stewardship of those resources and the privilege it is to steward God's resources. Verse 39 For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. This is my my favorite um, part of this. He says, we will not neglect the house of our God. One of the blessings of Hope Church is that the Lord has provided for us uh, tremendous facilities here. Uh, one of my favorite things about Hope Church is that it is not maintained uh, by individuals that are on the payroll, but that there are individuals that have said the same thing. If you come in the summer when the grass grows, I think it's going to happen again, right? It'll get warm enough that the grass grows again, right? And, and when, when the grass grows here, we have individuals that sacrifice their time. Nobody knows their names. They don't do it because they're noticed, but they've chosen to just say, like, I refuse to ignore Uh, to neglect the house of God. Uh, There's individuals that do that all over the place here at Hope Church. And that's not just this church, but that's what it means to be people who glorify the God that deserves it. I think it's appropriate for us to say in our own lives, in our own worship, in our own commitment to God that we say, in our core, we refuse to ignore and to neglect the house of our God. Why? Because 
he is worthy, that he deserves our best. And I'll, and I'll say to you that in my own life, as I've wrestled with applying this truth, that, that I really know that my most natural state is to be in there and grip. Can you imagine the foolishness of that raccoon? That it's ultimately going to cost him his life because he's not willing to let it go. And I, I want to be a double-handed, open-to-God person in my life, in every single area of my life. And why is that? Is that because of the fringe benefits? Is that because I, I get more out? No, it's actually just because I believe in my heart that the God of the universe is worthy to receive that. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we love you and thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is so profound for us. Even, even the fact that, like we talked about last week, that there were people who had gotten this wrong for decades. And that finally, at this stage in their life, they're just ready to say, it's time. It's time for me to get this right. I pray for that for this church body. I pray for that for each one of us. And I even confess that there's elements of this that are a part of my life that I have to be willing to choose to just say, I work, work hard to try to be in control, uh, to steward the things that you've given me. But Lord, that what you've chosen to ask me, what you're most glorified in, is when I am willing to lay those little fishes and loaves that I, I know I'm tempted to believe that are just for my comfort and for my provision and to lay them at your feet. And Lord, what we believe and what we've seen over and over again is it may not be for our benefit at all, but it may just be for your glory. But if we do this, Lord, we get to engage in the work of the living God. And Lord, I believe that you're worthy of that. I believe that you deserve that. I believe that that's what it means for you to be our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We love you. We thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And as we continue on in worship, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.